You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We've talked earlier on The Zeitgeist about the fall of the Berlin Wall and the diplomacy that made German reunification possible in the crucial period of 1989-1990. That was episode two with Professor Mary Cerati, by the way. Divided Germany was a microcosm of the standoff between West and East, and the Berlin Wall was the iconic symbol of the Iron Curtain. But the division of Europe went deeper, and its effects are still visible today. Today on The Zeitgeist, we'll widen the aperture and consider Germany's role in the post-Cold War construction of a new European political and economic order. When we think about the collapse of communism, we conjure images of thousands of East Germans on November 9, 1989, crossing into West Berlin at the Bornholmerstrasse crossing, or jubilant crowds atop the Berlin Wall at the Brandenburg Gate. Still gives me chills uh, to see it, although I don't know about you. But it was Hungary, six months earlier, that put the first holes in the Iron Curtain, as Budapest announced the dismantling of the electric fence system on the border to Austria. Hungarian Prime Minister Miklos Nemet's goal was not to provide a path for East Germans to escape to the West, though that would later be the result. Now, Hungary, along with Poland and other parts of the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe, were motivated by two things. Popular discontent, in part with the mismanagement and corruption in their calcified command economies, and national aspirations that had been suppressed through coercion and, at times, bloodshed over the four decades since the end of the Second World War. From the Baltic to the Adriatic to the Black Seas, decades of discontent boiled over, and disaffected people found their voice. One result was the reunification of Germany, But to balance the concerns of France and other Western European leaders, German Chancellor Helmut Kohl agreed to an even closer European integration in order to ensure that a unified Germany would not dominate Europe alone. Another result was persistent pressure from Central and Eastern European countries to join the West. To open paths to prosperity and to ensure their security, they sought to become members of the European Union and NATO. Both organizations during the 1990s established frameworks to promote reform and give a process toward membership. Germany, again, was central to this change of the European political and economic landscape. Russia, for its part, was half in, half out of this new European framework. Increasingly connected economically with Europe, it was at first ambivalent and later antagonistic toward the EU, with its liberalism, democratic protections, and subordination to the rule of law. And in security terms, Russia has been unwilling to be just another European country, aspiring instead to reestablish a zone of privileged interest over its neighbors, as the wars in Georgia and Ukraine most recently remind us. How did leaders at the time see the challenges they faced? Did they overlook the seeds of the difficulties we now confront? Or were they unforeseeable for the political decision makers at the time? In this episode of the Zeitgeist, we talk with Dr. Christina Spohr, She is the Helmut Schmidt Distinguished Professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies at the Henry Kissinger Center for Global Affairs. She's the author of many works of contemporary history, and her latest book will come out this fall, and it looks at the end of the Cold War in Europe and also at the direction China has taken since the violent suppression of pro-democracy protests at Tiananmen Square. 
The book is titled Post Wall, Post Square, Rebuilding the World After 1989. Join us. I'm here today with Dr. Christina Spohr. Um, it's great to have you with us. Well, thank you very much for having me here to talk to you today. Well, and uh, you, you are in the midst of a book project, uh, or maybe at the end of a book project, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so I thought it would be a great time to talk with you about the end of the Cold War, or I think, as you put it, the exit from the Cold War, yes. which I think is a nice way of looking at it, the, uh, perhaps the exfiltration <laughs> from the Cold War, and what that tells us uh, today about uh, the shape of the world. And uh, and so uh, we're delighted to have the opportunity to talk uh, to talk that through. The first thing that you know struck me is, uh, you know, I think you describe uh, this as as the uh, the hinge years, sort of 1989 to 1992, a time when the the Cold War came to a close, but with a really uncertain future about what would succeed it. And we see even today, 30 years later, uh, the, the remnants or the, uh, the consequences uh, of, of those times. Uh, so do you think, do you think we, got, uh, we got a lot of things right or did we get a lot of things wrong because we weren't thinking far enough ahead back in 1989, 1990, 1991? I think perhaps sort of looking at it as a prescription is perhaps difficult. I think we, if we talk about this in terms of the hinge years, what I'm trying to say is that um, it was basically a kind of process. We are looking at a period where we're mo- moving out one epoch to, uh, to another. And the, and the leaders who were the shapers and the managers of this change, they were quite aware that they were at a moment of decision, but also at a historically decisive moment. It was really a sort of turning point. And so they were quite conscious in, in terms of what they were trying to do. And what is very interesting is that, um, you know, we look at this often in history as sort of a period of, of revolutions, revolutions from below, um, you know, the people as a right. protein force. But uh, what I was interested in was how this, these forces got channeled. We are also looking at great geopolitical structural changes. But ultimately, what is interesting is that um, the leaders in charge at the time, they were very much also of a particular generation. Many had experienced World War II. Yes. Um, some were born um, in, a, in a way that they didn't experience in, in themselves as soldiers, but all the men and the one woman, Margaret Thatcher, um, had a sort of mental map either by what they thought about World War One or World War Two, and they very much felt that they wanted to manage this big change from one epoch to another in a non-conflictual and a peaceful manner. Yes, and so I'm. I was very interested in sort of looking over their shoulders and looking at their mental maps and how they were f- feeling that they were building and designing something new. Yes, and if I could interrupt you there, uh, this was you know th- this was a development for which people were generally unprepared. Um, although tensions were declining after the rise of Mikhail Gorbachev, yes. um, and certainly by 1987, 1988, uh, relations were improving uh, between East and West. Still, a kind of catastrophic success, if you want to look at it that way, um, for the West was not something most people anticipated, and they didn't have a set of structures uh, or a new construction, a new house that they wanted to move into. That's right. I mean, the the thing is, if you look at what IR theorists wrote, uh, if you look at what um, CIA reports said, there was an awareness, say, of the Soviet Union's economic, socioeconomic decline. Um, but, you know, nobody had on the radar that uh, suddenly Germany might unify. I mean, 
and even if we look, for example, at the at the process of German unification, which we can do later in the conversation mm -hmm. in more detail, um, you know, there, there were these moments when, when, when even Helmut Kohl thought, is it 10 years? Is it going to be five years? Even after the wall had fallen, you know, then it was just in the end one year. The, the, the point is that what we were seeing in the late 80s, we, we saw the diffusing of the Cold War, especially in the military domain through the INF treaties, through the Gorbachev, um, Reagan summits. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the question is then also, you know, what do you call the end of the Cold War? Is it this diffusing? Is it the end of the ideological uh, antagonism? I mean, then Gorbachev and, and Reagan, when they meet in Malta, they talk about common values. They talk about literally peaceful coexistence and even mm -hmm. being cooperative. Um, Gorbachev has ideas of a common European home. Um, there's all these ideas. But, you know, then again, there's a big change when the Soviet Union actually collapses because the world again looks entirely different than what you had just been thinking even a year earlier after Germany unified and thinking about a new world order that would have the two superpowers in place, but that would um, act cooperatively, as we saw, for example, in the context of the Kuwait war. Yes. And, you know, I think in general, it's the case that governments and leaders, they may plan for the worst um, yes. while they hope for the best. Yes. Um, but you usually don't plan for the best. That's um, right. And and so in the in the, in the case of the end of the Cold War, what wound up happening was a an adaptation of uh, of the existing economic and political and security structures in Europe. Um, to try to accommodate this new reality. Correct. And of course, different things happened in the different parts of Europe. I mean, we must not forget that Gorbachev had set out to reform the Soviet Union to make it more competitive as well as cooperative. Yes. No? That, that's how domestic and foreign policy went together. And if we then look at the Soviet bloc, his intention when he talked about, you know, abolition, um, abolishing the Brezhnev doctrine, when he made that big UN speech in 1988, yes. and made it public, what he had already sort of said a bit more in private before, um, you know, it became a credibility question. But then also, um, he thought that um, when you let, when you give freedom of choice to the Eastern Europeans, the the governments as they reform um, will also come up with a reformed, rejuvenated new kind of communism in a different in different national styles. But of course, that is not what happened. We saw then these electoral revolutions. We saw negotiated. Um, change. Uh, we saw change from above as much as push from below. We, they were actually quite different processes if you look at, you know, how solidarity with the um, Catholic Church and the Polish Communist Party negotiated around the round table. Yes. When we look at what happened in Hungary, where it was much more tied to sort of national history and also anti-Moscovite feeling, um, you know, the hand, yeah. and there had been the goulash economy before. And, and then that was kind of a snowball effect. There was, was spillover. And then within one year, all these regimes had been toppled and mm -hmm. changed. But then came, of course, a big effect that you needed then to turn this economic and political transformation and make it into something sustainable. Yeah. Yeah? But in some ways, it, was, it, it came with these electoral revolutions because when people had the chance to go to the ballot box, communism did no longer win in, right. in, in no form, no, neither the old or the new one. And that was the, w uh, perhaps one of the main flawed assumptions of Gorbachev was Correct. that, uh, was that uh, people would be willing to you know, preserve and adapt their own um, socialist systems Correct. Um, within uh, a... Uh, uh, a a Soviet-led um, um, uh, Eastern Europe. And 
you know, you mentioned this, and I want to zero in on it, which is the national aspirations, which in Central and Eastern Europe were so powerful, yes. um, especially in places like Hungary and in Poland, yes. um, but elsewhere too, uh, that you know, the Soviet Union certainly didn't realize the intensity of this national feeling. And you know, one might argue that even today, we're still grappling with the the the, as, the national aspirations in Central and Eastern Europe um, that are, are now part of the European Union yep. uh, and having their own sort of uh, disagreements about the nature of European integration. So, do you see that as a clear thread that's run over run through the last yeah, thirty I years? And how significant is that? Yes, I think we can can explain that because you know as I as I um, was um, analyzing and explaining to you this this exit from communism in those states. Then, of course, if we look at what happened in Western Europe at the same time, for the moment leaving the special German case out because it brings the two stories together, we yeah. were, of course, on a trajectory towards closer European integration, since the, especially since the Single European Act in 1986. Yeah. And at the core of that Western European integration uh, of, the, of the European community towards a European Union, a political and economic union, um, at the heart was the Franco-German tandem, with already at that point when we, as we were moving towards, uh, you know, this imagined Maastricht Treaty that was still a few years ahead mm -hmm. at, at in the mid-1980s, um, with Britain opting out of the social charter. And of, of course, in, in the Western Europe, that already showed that France and Germany, although they didn't exactly want the same thing either, France was much keener on the economic union, on binding in the Deutschmark, the strong German yes. economy into Europe and making sure that in that sense German power is controlled. And the and the Germans and, and Helmut Kohl, who saw Europe and Germany and, and both unification in some ways as the same side of the coin, uh, pressing for a more um, political union. And in some ways, Britain already at that moment, again, stayed out. It was keen on the free trade area, but when it came to mm -hmm. political union, social charter, it was sort of the odd one out. So while we are seeing in Western Europe integration, we are seeing in Eastern Europe, you know, total change. And then later on, in, from 1991 onwards, we see yet another multinational state, Yugoslavia, in imploding or rather exploding into warfare. Yes. So we have very different uh, developments. But to come back to sort of that, that central Europe, where sort of Germany is at the heart, once we move out of that German unification process, which effectively, uh, the way it worked out um, constitutionally, was an adaptation of the, the West German structures were conserved and adapted because effectively West Germany through Article 23 absorbed the East German lender into West Germany. Yes. So uh, the, 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 the style of government, the Deutschmarks, the West German currency, the economic style uh, of running the state, that stayed all intact. And in effect, that was even transported onto the, um, the European community. Right. Uh, because, of course, through the absorption of East Germany into West Germany, automatically the East German terrain also became part of the European community terrain. Yes. And so it wasn't an enlargement. It wasn't that structural funds from the EU had to be transported into a new member state because effectively an old member state had only been become bigger. Mm -hmm. But that then, of course, raised the question, if we are talking about, um, you know, this... Uh, these heady hopes for reunifying the continent after the Iron Curtain had been down and looking at the Eastern European desires where and how they could stabilize now these transforming political and, and, and economic systems, you know, as they were moving from the plan to the market and as they were moving from authoritarian regimes to democracy. They looked to what was becoming the EU as a club they would want to join. Right. And 
of course, the, as the club was just deepening before it was even beginning to contemplate of widening, there were these different ideas. Yes. I mean, I'm happy to talk about no. it. You know, totally different ideas on coal, what may be done with these Eastern European states to bring them into a fold, to create something pun, to create something all European. That's right. Well, and I think there are, there are at least three different um, imperatives for the Central and Eastern European countries. There's a desire for economic progress and development. Yeah. And clearly, you know, Western Europe and the European community then was uh, the, the strongly attractive uh, pole. Yeah. There was a desire for security, um, yeah. uh, where so NATO uh, then, of course, becomes uh, the vehicle for realizing mm -hmm. that desire for uh, for security. And then there is the national aspiration uh, to emerge from you know, a half century or longer of dominance uh, from Moscow. Yes. Um, and so those first two aspirations have been accommodated in one way or another mm -hmm. through the European Union and NATO. It's this third aspiration, which is still you know, causing some, uh, some challenges um, on, the, on the European political scene. You mean the the getting out of the shadow from from the from the past from well the, and yeah the that's right and and of yes. sort of national um, you know the, the the primacy or the importance of of national solutions to current problems uh, rather yeah. than subsuming them under um, multinational um, approaches. Correct. I mean, I think the, the, the problem is that um, as they were sort of trying to redefine their identity um, in that context of transformation to a market economy and then, of course, democracy, in some ways, as they sought to join these two Western clubs, EU and, and, and NATO, but especially um, if, if you look at the EU and the acquis communautaire that you have to fulfill, um, you know, you were aspiring to certain standards that had been created in Western Europe in that post-war situation. Um, and it's, of course, it's ironic that some of the most um, national and forward-looking people uh, in 1990, for example, you know, Viktor Orban was yes. around, uh, had a quite different tone from, from what they have now. And in some ways, one can see that this, this rise of populism uh, and, and, and right-wing politics, if you look at Poland and Hungary, for example, um, that there's a lot from in an even older past, from the interwar period, which has not been really sort of processed, you know, that mastering the yes. past process that the Germans had to do. On the other hand, one can say, and this is what has materialized when I've talked to people from those countries and uh, also the political elites who have been in charge for the last 30 years, that perhaps nevertheless, because since they joined you know, NATO in 1999, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, and then the EU in 2004, um, that at least because they're in the club, maybe it's not as bad as it would be if they were in that sort of zwischen Europa on their own. Because we must not forget that um, a lot has to do also with this um, neuralgic fear of somehow being stuck between these two big powers, Germany and, and especially in, in a volatile Russia. And I think we must not forget, if we look back to the 1990s, um, you know, even before they in earnest started to look to NATO, the biggest concern really both for Western Europeans and Americans who by default remain a European power through, through Germany staying in NATO, was this fear of importing instability from the East. And that really got sort of this heightened sense of, of um, concern arose, especially when the Soviet Union fell apart while Yugoslavia yes. was for um, ex exploding. Because, you know, this raised questions over what will now happen with borders, with minority rights, all these kinds of issues and refugee flows and migration flows. 
um, with, again, people on the move just two years after you had these revolutions of 88. So the moment you were sort of thinking you can move into a period of this more peaceful, stable situation, actually it seems that there's much more instability and volatility. And we must not forget mm. that, um, you know, however much... Um, you know, the West really in earnest tried to be um, very constructive and trying to help also Russia with its democratization and economic transformation process in 1992. But, you know, people really had no experience of how to transform, uh, you know, how to move yes. out of the plan uh, into the market. And if you look at, you know, how much it cost and how much time it took, even in the German case, where you had a West German state that yes. could, uh, you know, deal with East Germany, then can you imagine, uh, you know, what it would have taken to really transform Russia. And even within that first year already, you can see with Yeltsin this volatility. You know, is he looking west? Is he perhaps looking more to the east? You know, what to make with Russia's great power status? And also at the same time asking, you know, what about if we also look to joining NATO? I mean, there was a lot of unease yes. and uncertainty, but it was all in the spirit of goodwill. And that's something I would quite like to to stress. It was, there was a cooperative spirit where really everybody was sort of trying to work out where are we going now? But there were no grand strategy, clear plans where we should be in 10 years. It was all about let's now move on with um, democratization, economic transformation, which are the organizations which can help with that. Mm -hmm. And and I think that, you know, that goodwill, is, as you say, which started off uh, between the leaders of the United States, Germany, France, uh, the UK, uh, toward the Soviet Union, yes. that is Mikhail Gorbachev, Gorbachev. Um, that all of a sudden changed dramatically when the Soviet Union collapsed. Correct. Um, and, and so there is a certain criticism that one hears uh, these days that, uh, that, uh, that perhaps the, the West um, did not deal in a, uh, in a kind of fair and conscientious manner mm -hmm. with Russia and the Soviet Union. But mm -hmm. I think that tends to overlook uh, the fact that the Soviet Union was changing so rapidly yeah. um, that it was it was quite quite difficult uh, for for Western leaders to make any specific bets, uh, if you want to call it that, or to be assured that they could uh, that that Soviet or Russian leaders could carry out their commitments over time. Indeed, and I think it's really important that is you know where the historic historians research when you really can look at how the communication happens at these summit meetings or in the letters and what is in the memos. You know. In each government, of course, there's lots of blue, think blue sky thinking going on. There's different options people are looking at. But when you look at what is really being decided and how often they met and how they all were interested in forging trust, they all spoke about political friendships as well. Um, I think it's really important to, that we put ourselves in the shoes of the people then who were, you know, looking into the unknown. I think what happens today a lot is that, you know, we're looking at this from from the present day tensions of the United States and Russia and, mm -hmm. you know, say over the last decade, you know, um, the, um, the, the, the problems um, we have felt, um, we have mutually with, um, with, with Putin's Russia and, and what has been stated and how then, you know, um, history has been used by present day politicians to sort of rewrite what actually happened. Yeah. If we go back and what we look, what, what was really going on at the time, then yes, uh, there's no doubt. I mean, even um, Bush in 1991 in his, um, State of the Union address talks about, you know, um, having having won <laughs> in some ways the Cold War. Um, but, you know, triumphalist language was actually um, 
uh, much rarer. I mean, actually, the approach he was actually uh, blamed for being too cautious, uh, to you know, to not moving m- enough. To in, in some, in that sense, perhaps being too conservative. You know, literally speaking, wanting the Soviet you know, Union to, to stay, stay intact. intact. Yes, correct. And um, and in fact, um, you know, the same same as was for Helmut Kohl with Mitterrand. They all thought, you know, this is a devil we know. Actually, we get on very well with, and this makes it predictable. Politicians who use the whole toolkit of diplomacy like to think of, you know, how do we make politics predictable? And um, and in that context, you know, they, they sort of were adapting uh, al- along the way. And then when suddenly the Soviet Union collapsed, nevertheless, people tried to really move on and sort of think, okay, now we have Boris Yeltsin, how would, do we deal with him? Yes. And, you know, Boris Yeltsin came to the United States, uh, to the UN in early 1992, and actually, the same kind of relationship was beginning to evolve then and there as well um, in, in, in terms of East-West relations. And, you know, the IMF did and the World Bank did get involved in looking to, you know, help with, with the transformation um, in, in actual fact, if you look at the language, if you look at the creation of in late 1991 of the North Atlantic Cooperation Council, that yeah. was all about this idea that somehow um, we are looking at, you know, a Euro-Atlantic community from um, Vladivostok to Vancouver or the other way around, yes. if you so want. This and was be- before before Partnership for Peace. So this was a, an, a venue at NATO where uh, countries in the eastern from the former Warsaw Pact then could have a discussion on security. Issues Correct. It was about liaison and, and looking at cooperation, perhaps also in peacekeeping. And of course, now you must imagine, think of the map, then suddenly the Soviet Union collapses. In fact, it happens in the meeting when the Soviet ambassador who's now sitting there is saying, I'm not anymore representing the Soviet Union. You have to realize, you know, we have now this letter also from Boris Yeltsin here in this NATO meeting, this NAC meeting. And, um, you know, there's now all these other republics. And of yes. course, that means that it includes Central Asian republics and the, the geopolitics looks entirely different. But that didn't get changed. The snack continued uh, in, in 1992 all the way until Partnership for Peace. And here yeah. you can see there is this, this strategy. On the one way, the, the Western powers and, uh, and uh, America as a leading power in the NATO had to think, how do we now deal after the Soviet collapse especially, and with Eastern Europeans fearing what had happened in Yugoslavia, they were saying, we re- now really have a much stronger desire to join also the NATO because with the EU, it will take a long time for us to um, actually manage to uh, fulfill all the criteria, yeah. economic and political criteria, to get security, to come under this umbrella, to be stable, um, we would like to join NATO. And so actually that desire was brought to the North Atlantic uh, Alliance. Mm-hmm. Remember, the Bush administration wasn't keen on enlargement at all. They actually tried not to talk about it. So this pressure actually came from Eastern Europe for fear of this volatility in the East. Um, And it wasn't necessarily that at that particular point where you're so worried about Russia. That changed as the Russian rhetoric started to talk about the near abroad, a sphere Mm -hmm. of influence from 1993 onwards. So it is in that context, I think, that we have to see Russia then looks back to history, its feeling of great power status. At the same time, the West in this... Um, you know, um, willingness to then increasingly to embrace Eastern Europe, um, you know, will take them in. But what really, and that is you could call actually a reinvention because EU and NATO through enlargement have to reinvent also their purpose. Like in the NATO Mm -hmm. context, much more talk about collective security. Yes. um, More than just um, common defense. But the problem really is that 
for NATO to be in business, uh, what gets put on the table is that you have to conduct out-of-area missions. Yeah. And whereas in the Bosnian case, when America eventually gets involved, this happens under UN auspices, when the Kosovo campaign happens in 1999, it's the first time that um, a US-led NATO campaign takes place um, with uh, now an enlarged NATO, so it includes the three Eastern European states. Russia felt it wasn't informed in advance, so they felt slighted, nevertheless, yeah. never never mind that um, you know, they, they were concerned about their Slavic brothers, the Serbs. Um, so out of that sense of being slighted, in some ways, um, the fact that America is uh, now promoting, you know, self-determination uh, more overtly um, and Russia feels slighted, uh, there becomes to, it starts becoming a toxic mix because, yeah. you know, it, it's an overlapping terrain. That's right. And I, I want to go back to because you mentioned earlier that that Germany, when we talk about the integration of of, of Western Europe uh, in, in the European Union, on the one hand, and the uh, you know, the the integration of Eastern Europe, post-socialist countries um, uh, into uh, into the European Union, that Germany was in a way the the central um, yes, uh, the cockpit. Uh, yeah, yeah, because you have on the one hand Germany integrating its own um, eastern um, states uh, into a unified Germany, and at the same time um, being a driver of the deeper integration of the European Union. Yes. Um, when when we look at German politics today, yes, uh, I, I think you could certainly argue that we see still some of the echoes um, of of these decisions, some of the successes, but also some of the um, you know issues that remain. Absolutely. You have, you have big uh, divergence in political sympathies in the eastern states compared to the western states. Uh, you still have a lag in income and wealth uh, overall, um, and down the and and you also now have a uh, you know, the highest levels of support for far right um, uh, politics in eastern states. Mm -hmm. So, how much of this do you think is attributable to the decisions made in 1989 and in 1990? Uh, and how much of this yeah. is a result of other factors? I think there's quite a lot of roots uh, in this period we have just been talking about these hinge years because um, this adaptation of the Western West German constitution, this absorption of East Germany um, meant, of course, that the East Germans had to basically take on everything that was in, in, West, in West Germany. The government, you know, Helmut Kohl continues to be chancellor. Uh, interestingly, you know, Angela Merkel becomes a minister then in the first unified German government. You know, she's sort of the token uh, woman, also e East German person in, in his cabinet or, or one of them. Um, but I mention her obviously because she's the chancellor now. Um, and, uh, you know, then if we look at it in the security policy sphere, we can say because um, Germany um, then remained in NATO and that was actually... Uh, something that was also serving the purpose of um, accommodating the Soviets, because since the Soviets had been so worried um, and, and had all these historical fears of the Germany in the Second World War and the Great Patriotic War, in some ways it served as reconciliation as well, that Germany would be bound in the NATO. So there were two things. It was, on the one hand, a way to manage German power, which, in fact, France and Britain were also very concerned about. You know, there was talk of the Fourth Reich and so forth mm -hmm. um, by, by, by the British, and Mitterrand worried about the balkanization of Europe and 80 million Germans and all this kind of thing. 
thing, so Germany had to be bound in, NATO served that purpose. At the same time, America remained the European power uh, by, by that setup. And of course, that is something we are seeing today um, as well. So let me come back to the domestic um, situation. If we look at the recent um, German parliamentary elections, you could see, if you looked at these um, electoral maps, that West Germany um, would have had a majority for something called a Jamaica coalition, mm -hmm. the Liberals, the Greens and, and the um, Christian Democrats. And the party political landscape in East Germany looked very different. Yes. Um, you had much in certain parts uh, incredibly strong um, AfD. Um, you have Die Linke. You have the SPD. It's much more... Um, sort of um, dispersed in that kind of way. And, and it really, if you looked at it as a map, East Germany looked entirely different than West Germany. So you can see that the two societies um, have evolved in different ways. And um, in some ways, you know, we have also this debate about whether still the solidarity tax should be paid by West Germans to support um, all the build-up in East Germany. And um, especially considering that in certain West German parts, like in the Ruhr, you would also need a big infrastructural redevelopment. Because you've had deindustrialization. Um, exactly. Uh, so, well. you know, there's a lot of uh, also envy from certain parts in West Germany towards the Eastern Neulander. So, you know, the actual unification also at a human level and the way um, the, the two societies, as they were sort of merged and, and looked then also at their political leads, that unification hasn't really happened. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we can see that sadly now, you know, almost a generation and a half since that historic moment. So as a historic moment and the way it was conducted using that window of opportunity um it was in some ways the perfect way it all panned out within you know 12 months effectively yes. at the time but you know in terms of what would um, what in what this integration would mean for society um also you know if you look now at germany standing in the world today um because America had been the Schutzmacht, the protection power of the Germans, and the Germans, West Germans, had been told for 40 years, you know, you, you, know, you must uh, do away with all Prussian militarism, all that past, um, you know, the will to take responsibility uh, on, uh, in global politics to really turn your economic weight and then as a sovereign state, your political weight in potentially a military power protection of some kind is simply not there. It's not anymore in the German DNA. And yet at the same time, the moments the Germans act strongly, say, look, let's look at the austerity policy in the European context, then of course you immediately get pictures like in Greece of Angela Merkel with uh, a Hitler moustache. Yes. So, you know, the ghosts of the past are actually still there. You know, mm -hmm. so Germany is in this, in this really awkward bind. Uh, and Germany also played into this 1990s idea, oh, maybe we will have a sort of Weltinnenpolitik, a world run, you know, by international law, uh, the UN, and everything will be peaceful. And of course, the truth is that already by 1992, the awareness was there that Europe can't even deal with a border, uh, with a war right on its border in Yugoslavia. That's right. You know, the uh, I think one thing that's really striking when you look at the process of of reconciliation and of building trust in Western European countries, yeah. the, con the, the core countries that uh, formed the European Union, there is now a high degree of trust, I think, um, from the Netherlands, from France, toward Germany. Yes. Um, and that took 60 or 70 years yes. um, to, uh, to accomplish. And we are now only 30 years after the uh, the collapse of, of communism in Eastern Europe. Yes. And so maybe it would be, maybe it's simply um, you know, impossible to expect 
that kind of trust building and uh, institution building to happen so quickly, 30 years as being a short time mm-hmm. when you look at those historical uh, trends. Um, but I guess the question I would end with is, you know, are we now in 2019 at a similar hinge point? Um, you talked about a hinge point mm-hmm. in, from 1989 to 1992. We haven't exactly had revolutions uh, in in Europe, but are we in a similar hinge point between two periods of of political, economic, and uh, international development? Yeah, I do think that the the world that sort of emerged out of this end of the Cold War, the world actually that you know Roman Herzog in 1995 said, uh, "Eine Zeit, die noch keinen Namen hat," a time that as yet has no name, and we haven't given this this epoch yet a name. But something is coming here to an end, and in some ways, we we could have perhaps seen it, but we didn't pay attention to it also not, uh, you know, if we look at it from the perspective of the United States, that in some ways, um, you know, geopolitics is back if you look at it in a, in a, on a global plane and then Europe's place in that because, you know, irrespective of um, Russia's um, socioeconomic uh, troubles and, and its dependency on on, uh, the, on the energy markets, um, you know, Russia is, has been trying to rise under Putin and is a revisionist power in that sense. And um, the Chinese are using uh, geoeconomics and now beginning to convert that into more political power. And both China and Russia have talked that they, they want to look at the world as a multipolar or a polycentric world, where in, if we talk about China, China talks about a vision until 2050. Putin has a vision for Russia and also how he engages uh, with China. If you think, for example, about um, the exploration of these big shipping routes in the in the north of the Arctic, north north of the um, Ru- um, Russian shores. Um, so, um, if we look at this, you know, the, the big global economic networks and and the geopolitics. Um, then we we have t- the, an ascending China that has been actually ascending from the moment it exited the Cold War in its own particular way. Remember Tiananmen Square? Also 1989. Square? Uh, also 1989. So they cracked down. It's a it's now a communist, capitalist, an authoritarian capitalist uh, power that is has said that its aspiration is the third superpower. Um, and Lavrov, the um, s- um, Russian. Um, foreign minister has talked about um, a post-West world. So you have two challengers who are trying to challenge what for the Americans was the unipolar moment. In some ways you could say it was a lingering moment. It lasted for quite a while, but Mm -hmm. now it's being challenged. And Europe in this context has also to adapt to it, It you know, if it wants to be with its 500 um, million citizens, you know, a, a, a strong economic and also politically a, a value block. And that's where it is so problematic that at the moment the um, um, Euro-Atlantic relationship um, is is um, so tension-ridden because actually I think that, you know, um, if, we, if we look at it as a sort of what kind of way of life do we want to have and what kind of societies under which forms of governance do we want to live, then we have to see that there's a challenge by two strong um, authoritarian regimes and we see authoritarianism popping up in other places and also in places where we have decomposing states. And of course, if we look at the future where data networks, uh, logistics, all these things matter more and we have seen you know through this um, cyber attacks to the in, uh, impact on the American and also some European elections right. um, what 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 it means that you know the newspapers the media um, the governments the monopoly of 
of distributing information is no longer there because you can get it anywhere and it can be manipulated. We have to adapt to a totally different world, not just in terms of who are the big great powers, but also what does it mean if we move into an ever further network world where at the same time some countries keep a lid on the information that their people get and on the other hand, some of these same countries actually are trying to influence public opinion through, uh, you know, data and information, uh, through social media, and in that way affect the democratic processes as we have seen. So yeah. these are quite different threats. And I think, you know, we may be again having to adapt and reinvent, but we do. It's very difficult to know how we are grasping what lies ahead of us. Well. We certainly have adaptation and reinvention ahead of us. Uh, so it's been uh, terrific to review uh, the, the, the exit from the Cold War with you today, uh, Christina. And I want to thank you for joining us on The Zeitgeist. And thank you very much for this opportunity to talk on The Zeitgeist. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören!